from the Gettysburg and 91.1 WCDT Gettysburg. I'm Ben Bonds, and this is I'm Gary Mangala, and today on Target, we will be discussing the recent Gettysburg Gives Challenge as well as the new parking lot. Then I'll sit down with the president of Gettysburg College Democrats, Matt Salton, to discuss the state of the race and maybe some Dems in disarray, because that's all that happens. Stay with us. All right, let's get into it. Okay, well, that was momentous. (laughs) (laughs) I've been begging Ben for, I think, two years to let me do that. Um, Don't say I don't capitulate. Yeah, it's, uh, is it, what, the fourth week, the fifth week of school in December? Uh, We just concluded week four. Yeah. Three weeks till spring break. Oh, jeez. I just had my first two exams in two of my classes this week. Yeah, I didn't have any this week, but I had one last week. Which is crazy. That's week three. What did you learn that you can take a whole exam? I don't know, but, uh, you know. You did well, I guess. did okay. Good. I mean, I'm taking this class pass fail. So does <laughs> so it really matter? So getting a 70 is statistically the same as getting a 100, <laughs> even though it would have been a dent to my pride had I gotten a 70. Mm, that makes sense. Got closer to 100. Yeah, that's always great to hear. Anyway, yeah. so there's that. Uh, parking lot. Parking lot. We're getting a new parking lot. Sound the alarm bells. Yeah. I was just reading up on this before we started this, and before we get into like the whole like, semantics of it, the parking lot's going to have EV chargers for electric vehicles. That's wild. Does it mean the college is going to start replacing its fleet with electric vehicles? I don't... Is it? I, I don't think that was announced as yeah. part of this thing. I'm just speculating I, because that's what we do here on Target. That would, yeah, that would be really cool. I, I would kind of be for that because we have an insane amount of vehicles on campus, like all our vans and stuff. That would be cool. And then it would have, I think then if we did that, wouldn't we have to deal with less reimbursements for like gas and stuff on traveling? Possibly, yeah. So, I mean, functionally what's happening here is that College is preparing to put in a dorm building yeah. across the street from the Jager Center in that, what I guess is currently Stadium North, that parking lot. Uh, maybe it's Stadium West. I always get those two mixed up, but they're right next to each other, so it's hard for me to understand how one of them is North and how one of them is West and they're adjacent. But yeah. that's really beside the point. Um, but anyway, so they're pre- preparing to put in a residence hall there on top of a big parking lot, so there was a concern that uh, that would, you know, decrease the amount of available parking. Yeah. Um, and so now this parking lot will replace some. You know, we're going to send a reporter out to that parking lot as it stands today to count how many parking spaces are in it one of these days and then to compare that to uh, to what they are advertising is in the new parking facility. That sounds like an assignment, Gary, I would have given you uh, your first year that really back does. when I was the news editor and you were just an enthusiastic staffer. <laughs> I was staff a really writer. enthusiastic staffer. How the tables have turned. <laughs> well, I'm just as jaded as I ever was. And, uh, <laughs> I think um, I may have gotten you to join that club. Yeah. But in any case... It we'll, won't be me. We'll, we'll send <laughs> like someone out there it. one of these days to do some analysis. But in the meantime, it's... Uh, underway and and it did cause some i don't know if it was related i actually think they were just two contemporaneous projects yeah where also right in that same area on constitution avenue there was they were digging up some parts of the road in that current constitution parking lot i think that was maybe a separate project that was they like just, a borough thing i think yeah, yeah that was municipal yeah. as far as i know but in any case there's been some 
some construction activity going on in that woods. Mm. So that's thing one. I'm I'm really excited about the uh, new dorm building. I will say that. Sorry, new residence hall. The other day, I didn't know that we weren't allowed to say dorm in Gettysburg. I learned that recently. I say whatever. I Dorm. But did you dorm. hear about the... the dorm. <laughs> yes, I know. They, yeah. They... It's like the freshman first year thing. Like, we're not allowed to say freshman, um, which we were talking about earlier, because it's gendered, but also because it's derogatory, because it's making fun of freshmen. Yeah, I don't know. There are lots yeah. of semantic things. And here's another semantic thing, Gary. Did you know that when someone uh, <laughs> makes a donation to Gettysburg College, we call it a gift, gift. and not it's a, a Gettysburg donation? Gi- if they it's part are of the still Gettysburg a donor. Gives, yeah. They are a donor. They're not a gift giver. They but they donated us a gift. a gift. They made a gift. So speaking of where we're heading with this, is yeah. the Gettysburg Gives, the college's annual 36-hour giving challenge uh, run out of the Office of Annual Giving in the Department of, or the Division of Development, Alumni, and Parent Relations, colloquially, though really cringeworthily known as Dapper. Uh, Can is, I? Yeah, you want to yeah. interject on Dapper? No, not before, before Dapper. I just want to say, I don't understand why we needed it to be 36 hours. I don't know who, because I'm pretty sure it's like something that Dapper decided within themselves. They're like, we only have 36 hours to do this. I don't well, understand. Well, it's basically, it's two days, but it's two business days. So rather than go from like midnight to midnight and make it 48 hours, we go from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. the next day. Why don't we do like noon on one day, like we do 48 hours still, but it's like a noon, then a whole day, and then another noon. Listen, Gary, I talk, we'll, we'll get Trace Mullis, the new VP of development on this podcast. That's like my biggest issue. I think 36 hours is just a bizarre an time arbitrary frame. time frame. Yeah, it's like when you were in high school and class like started at like 8.17 and you got out at 2.14. Why? Why? State regulations. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> so anyway... Uh, the giving challenge occurred this week. Yes, it did. Uh, and in that context, there were a very high, there was a very high number of donors. Mm. They crossed the initial goal was to have one donation for each of the twenty six hundred and change Gettysburg students, which is always the goal. Um, and now that enrollment is down a little bit, our goal is actually a little lower than it once was. But two six two three. Terrific. Uh, so once they hit that goal, they set a second goal of 3,000 donors, and they landed in the 3,255. 3,255. So that was good. What was less good, probably, <laughs> is that the totals declined. Yeah, I don't want to be an alarmist, but I'm going to – I think the adverb precipitously applies here. In 2019, the college raised – $2.1 million, yep. $2.09 million yep. from the Giving Challenge. This year, they raised 802836 There we go. So that is a 62% decline uh, <laughs> in one year. Which is kind of horrifying if you think about it. Well, yes, or maybe no. It could be not horrifying if... The college has been soliciting its bigger donors uh, for other projects. Like, for example, I know that associated with the new business major, they are have been working to get some philanthropy to support the new faculty positions that that will require. Yeah. So if it turns out that some of the college's bigger donors who otherwise might have been part of Gettysburg Gives have just been giving to that, and so, it, you know, separate things, that would be one thing. 
We have thus far received no indication from the college that that is the case. They did tell us on Friday, uh, we're recording this on Saturday the 15th, uh, they did tell us on Friday that they're still tabulating some donations, although it's all through a digital system and it's time-bound, so I don't know about that, but okay. Um, the, the, the fact that, so they, they said that to us to suggest that running an article on it might be premature. It was not premature, however, for the college to float out a release within an hour of the challenge's end, declaring we did it again, and... Uh, I will say in this public setting that I got into a bit of an exchange about whether the press release was self-congratulatory or congratulatory of the donors. Yeah. I think I'm just going to have to agree to disagree with the Office of Communications and Marketing because there's language in the release that certainly read as congratulatory of the college for raising this money rather than <laughs> gratitude for those who... I mean, there was language of both. I just think that well, I mean, if the if the vote if votes if the if the numbers aren't tabulated yet, I think self congratulatory is the name of the game because you're you, you want to jump at that chance to say how much you raised without getting the number. I mean, I just have an inherent. You know what? I'll get into it a little bit. I have an inherent issue with Dapper, and I'm I'm happy to talk about that a little bit. So when the search for that who we know we now know is going to be Trace Mollis Mollis um, when they were having the search. Um, we were in, uh, I was in a meeting with just like everybody on campus was allowed to come last summer and the search firm had come and a couple of faculty members voiced this um, issue that they were having with Dapper and its lack of communication with both the student and the faculty populations on campus. And uh, after that, I started to realize that a little bit more, just like this inherent disconnect that, you know, Dapper is obviously focusing on alumni and donors. And I get the college is a business. Like, trust me, I get that. But at the same time, it is also a place of faculty and students. Um, well, one manifestation yeah. of that, you said, I mean, was this week at Senate. Oh, that's what I was going to get into. Yeah. yeah. So at Senate, two members of Dapper had come to, or like development and like the giving, the getting the giving gives, unit. Yeah, unit had come to speak about. Um, what Gettysburg Gibbs was and just kind of encourage uh, students to both give and then participate. There's like some Gettysburg Gibbs challenges within like clubs and organizations. Um, also, I have an, I, I hate this because I hate that um, in order to force students to donate money and to get them, oh, sorry, gift money and have other people gift money, they're using part of the money from Gettysburg Gibbs to then reward them with like sandwich and rap parties afterwards like i don't whatever but then one of both of the uh members who have come to senate are gettysburg alum one i think graduated in like 2014 and he at one point says you know what trust me i get it i know what you guys are going to say you pay a lot of tuition trust me um I, I graduated in 2014, and I'm still paying off my student loans now. And there was just this immediate hush in the room of just like, oh, like the pain of students sitting there, especially knowing like how much tuition has risen since then. And I think, first of all, bad move on your part, like marketing-wise. Like, man, like you, you just don't talk about student loans when you're trying to ask like current students for money. But I think also there's this, I think, ideology that Dapper has. I mean, I was... I've been in conversation where Dapper talks about, you know, how gifts 
and tuition are two very different things. And I get that in terms of where the money goes. Tuition goes to one thing and gifts go to another. And I get that. Kind of. I mean, it's all part of the same pot. Yeah. And you can also choose where it goes. Like, it's not it's not my problem that you put my tuition someplace and then need money somewhere else. Like, I that does, that's not my fault. But at the same time, it's coming out of the same place. Like, if you're asking students to pay a gift, um, there's this there's this John Mulaney bit where he's talking about how ridiculous it is that he pays he he at the time when he went to school he paid twenty thousand dollars a year to get an English degree, and then he was talking about how a couple like right after he graduated he started getting those emails and those like letters from his college saying like remember us like give us a gift we want money and he's like you already spent everything i already gave you i just gave you eighty thousand dollars you already spent it um and i think a lot of students do have that mentality i know there are students you know emailing back dapper when they're like sending out the gettysburg gives email saying you know don't stop asking for students for money and there, there were comments like that after we posted the article like on the facebook of people saying like listen it's just not in the cards for a lot of people to give money Right, and so a couple of things. First, the goal of the Gettysburg Gives campaign, the concept has always been that if they hit some donor threshold, no matter how much those donors give, they could give a dollar, that it then unlocks this sizable pot of money given by college benefactors. That So it's kind of like a, ma a glorified matching fund situation, um, which is a model that could make sense. Honestly, I don't. I didn't actually see anything that that's how it was run this year. They just referred to the people who were in the stretch pool as sponsors of the challenge. So I don't know. That money might have already been given. I don't know how that worked this year. Um, but there, I, I think, and no one has ever said this on the record uh, mm. because it would not really be something you want to publicized, but I think that the reason the Gettysburg Gives Challenge exists is to try and get as broad a range, as many people donating as possible, because when the U.S. News World Report rankings factor in things and, and associated rankings, they, they look at things like percent of alumni who give, or, you know, percent of students who yeah. give, and so this is just an opportunity to jack those numbers up by trying to incentivize those people to give by associating those gifts with a bigger pot from people who probably would already be giving, but then they associate the, the stretch pool, the money given by bigger dollar donors, to incentivize smaller donors, which is a concept that makes theoretical sense as annoying and perhaps patronizing as some students find yeah. it to be asked to give while they're in the midst of paying, you know, an average, you know, with discount rate of, for most students here, the average discount rate across the four years is probably about half. So students paying an average of maybe $35,000 a year over four years, so that's $140,000. You know, it's it's difficult to say, yeah, you want $20 more? Here sure. you go. Yeah, exactly. But I guess where the disconnect was this year is that the stretch pool was 15% of what it was last year and 15% of what it was the year before and a third of what it was the year before that, such that there really wasn't as much amplification of the the small dollar gifts this year, which is not at all a criticism of any of the people that were in 
the pool of yeah. stretch givers who, you know, were very generous and many of whom are parents of current students who agreed to give additional money to the college while their kids are in college. Which is insane. Hats off to them. Um, but, you know, there were no trustees this year in the, in the in the stretch pool as there have been past years. Again, maybe that's because, you know, there are just different priorities in Dapper with how they're approaching this sort of operation. But all of it is to say that either it appears one of two things is true. Either a ball was dropped somewhere and this was not a high priority this year, or this was not a high priority this year because they've adjusted their priorities. Or perhaps third, it was a high priority and it just didn't go so Why do you think that, like, I don't know. Why do you think that something like Gettysburg Gives doesn't, I don't know, have the same, like, I just don't feel like, I felt like I saw more of a, out of students at least, like, more passion towards it than I did this year. In previous years? Yeah. Like, I didn't see anyone really care about it. Like, I, I, I was on a couple of executive boards where people were like, we have to make some, like, token contributions. Either contributions or just, like, even, like, making some waves about uh, making a... So I, I'm a part of a theater club that put out a video about Gettys for Gives and we, like, toured the theater and we showed, like, things that we need funding for and, like, things like that. But none of us seem to care this much. Well, I... And, and truth be told, I didn't really see a whole lot of build-up to Gettysburg Gives this year at all. Yeah. Like, even from development. Mm. Um, in previous years, there were... And, and they did still use various hashtags this year, but like there were clear ways of support. Even if you weren't going to make a donation, you know, here are exactly. ways you can support by spreading it on social media or whatever. And I did see uh, some social media action going on in athletics, which has always, which has historically been a strong participant in Gettysburg Gives. Um, I don't know. I, I just. Something doesn't feel right. It seems like there's a missing piece here somewhere um, with respect to how this happened. The college budgets uh, or, or plans, plans for uh, about $5 million to be raised through annual giving each year. Yeah. Last year, $2 million of that came from Gettysburg Gives. Or $2 million came into annual giving. Some of that, I'm sure, went to endowments or other things. But this year, a year when we already fell short of revenue projections through tuition, the, the totals from this appear to have been lower. Unless, maybe, who knows? There was some kind of a gift that was not tabulated along the way, and that's what they were trying to tell us on Friday, but it didn't stop them from rushing out their release. I don't know. Do you think that it has anything to do with the fact that we're not really in a donation culture right now because we're not in a campaign? No, we weren't in the campaign. I mean, the campaign last year, and in fact, last year, the campaign had just ended the preceding fall. And they had the most successful Gettysburg Gives ever with raising more than yeah, $2 million. because we were right out of a campaign. I'm saying that we're very much not in a campaign now. Maybe. Um, um, I mean, but also that comes back to the whole, like... We're going to be starting a campaign in short order, I am oh, sure. Of and, and so the last one was Gettysburg Great. I think the one before that was Unfinished Work, 
So we're going to need a third Gettysburg sort of slogan to... I'm excited for that. I want to be part of a naming. Like, let's have a... Let's... let's Yeah, let's spend some time one of these days on this podcast suggesting potential yeah. names for the next capital um, campaign. For anybody, like, who has any, like, you know, power in that regard, I would love to be on, like, a naming committee. I'm putting my hat in the ring for that. That would be really fun. Um, yeah, I don't know. Also, I don't know if part of it's... Because um, I remember when the Gettysburg Great campaign had ended and that, like, the glass box and the fireworks and all that. <laughs> I remember, I mean, I, I at least felt a certain way. And I know a lot of people who had, like, donated, you know, even if it was 50 bucks, felt a way about it. Like, you know, oh, I was invited to this thing where they're going to be giving me a meal that will probably cost more than 50 bucks. And I donated 50 bucks. Why just, like, use that towards the campaign? And then that happened. And then on top of that, you know, we've kind of think, I guess maybe the inauguration was a bit fancy as well. Um, and just, I guess for students, because again, like you're not going to really think about where your money goes. You're just thinking that your money goes into something. There's this idea that you're seeing all these really, really fancy things going around. And then you might still be having issues like in your dorm room, getting hot water. Like, you know, it can be hard. Yeah. I understand where that donating. feeling's coming yeah. from. I will say with respect to the, the big tent event, there was a threshold at which they invited people to that. hundred percent. more than... But like there was other events where people... But you're I, saying yeah. that like a student who gave $10 is seeing people going here to an event where, well, they're, they're, my $10 is feeding this person. Exactly. You're seeing that or I know that I talked to some like staff and faculty who had donated a certain amount and then got invited to a separate an thing. employee reception. Yeah, an employee reception reception and if you like donated 50 bucks and the, I'm assuming the employer reception is still also very nice you're gonna you're gonna see like you're gonna feel as though a there, were, of what, there were sponsors for a lot of the events such that it didn't cut into the overhead but again this is all one pot of money yeah like if, if someone puts up I don't know a hundred dollars to, to underwrite an event so that the proceeds from that event can go straight to the college well, their $100 could have also just gone to... The, so it's like kind of a, a... It's not really different. I think that... Um, I think that, you know, this this idea of annual giving, it's it's obviously important to the college, but fundamentally, student tuition and room and board account for more than 80% of the college's annual revenue. Mm -hmm. um, annual giving accounts for 4%. And I remember at a town hall meeting, Janet Morgan Riggs once said, you know, it is an important 4%. I don't know where we would be without it, but it is just 4% with respect to this annual giving that I think grates on a lot of students when they see it because they're paying lots of money. And the other thing is that, like, no one pays, and something else Janet Morgan Riggs said, is that no one, even if you pay full tuition, no financial aid or anything, no one pays the full cost of a Gettysburg education. Uh, that it's all supported by endowments, which were donated, by annual giving, which is donated. And so all of that is true. It just seems that Gettysburg Gives is one of these... I just wonder about the cost-benefit. Like, there is certainly benefit to the U.S. News World Report rankings when they get employees and when they get students and when they get uh, alumni to donate and be engaged with their college. That's all well and good. It just seems like 
this is one of these things that for a relatively small amount of money in the yeah. grand scheme of things in the college budget, $800,000 is important, but it's not, you know, monumental yeah. relative to the whole pie that this is just getting this small piece of the pie rubs an awful lot of people the wrong way. And, you know. And I would just also like to say, because I do think that there's a perception that some people have that like people our age don't understand the concept of philanthropy and I think that that is tough to get into but I think that also keep in mind that when I'm walking around campus I see a pretty like it visually looks like a financially well off campus and then you know if I have money that I'm going to donate I'm probably not going to like frankly like when I donate I tend to like I don't donate to Gettysburg I donate to like Australian fires or like, you know, Planned Parenthood or like things that I feel like aren't in that realm. And I, and yes, you know, it's harder, I think, for students to understand the actual financial state of the college. But mm. I think that if development, I truly think that if development was more attentive of the fact that when students see these fancy, these fancy receptions, and they see all this stuff that people do for donors and trustees and like the Google Society and all these things. They're taking that into account, and it does make people feel as though they don't need it. Like, right. frankly. And, right, and students' yeah. participation in those glitzy fundraisers is usually as the entertainment. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's certainly true. I think the other thing is that the thing about Gettysburg Gibbs is that you, you can direct a donation to any programmatic area you like if when they were advertising this to students, they were more direct and said, look, we are collect all student donations. We would like, I mean, if you want to make a donation to some other program area, have at it. But we are encouraging all student donations to go to like the mosaic cupboard to help make sure that your fellow students have access yeah, I would to, love that. Yeah. to you know, food and toiletries and, and, and the things that that provides so that, you know, everyone is part of our community and this is lifting up members of our community who need a hand. Like, maybe there would be a different reaction to this thing where, you know, you feel like, oh, well, if I give $10, that's, you know. Five toothbrushes. Right, yeah. exactly. Uh, so maybe there's just a, a marketing angle there. And I will say that they did... Um, OME, the Office of the Multicultural Engagement, which administers the Mosaic Cupboard, did send out to its email list, like, a, hey, you can direct your donation to that. But I didn't receive any kind of solicitation from the college making any kind of a concerted effort to, other than, eh, you can direct your gift anywhere you'd like. And I will say the only time I did donate to Gettysburg Gifts, not this year, but I think it was last year or the year before, when there was a fund that... Uh, Member of the Board of Trustees, uh, Joe Beernot, had committed a large sum of matching funds to start a fund for instrumental music travel um, to so that the Wind Symphony and the orchestra could go on tour as the choir has a, a, a endowed fund that I think it's an endowed fund, a fund of some kind that supports that kind of travel. And I w received a, an email from, from a faculty member who is involved in those areas. Okay, it was Russ McCutcheon. Uh, and he said, you know, look, I, I know that you feel like you've been asked to give a lot of money and tuition, and you have. But we're, we were in the top, I guess this was two years ago, because we were getting ready to go on tour. Yeah. Um, and, and he said, well, look, Joe Beernot has 
A, already given generously to the tour you were about to go on, everyone's tour cost was reduced by his philanthropy, and now he's putting up more money to help future students have the same thing, but it only works if you donate to. And, you know, that moved me to give some money to... to yeah, because when you say, if I give $5, that means $10, like... Right, and so you want to do that, and I think right, yeah. and I think that maybe the challenge that is on the horizon for maybe it's not just Gettysburg Gifts, but anytime they're trying to get students to give more money to something to an institution to which they have already mortgaged, you know, gotten a mortgage that doesn't come with a house, um, is to direct it to specific areas that you have already benefited from, and I think it probably needs to be less vague than. Scholarship support. I, agree. I suppose everyone in some, you know, most people have benefited from some form of scholarship support. It's just one of those things that really, I rarely see visceral negativity towards Gettysburg College from current students, more so than when, when they're they doing Gettysburg gifts. And it's sad because it's meant, it's, it's intended to be a celebration of programmatic areas of Gettysburg College, and it turns into just a really viscerally negative thing. And so, you know, it, it's, it certainly is a challenge that they'll have to consider. And maybe, and I think maybe there, I don't want to say that their complacency had developed, but after several successful years raising, having large, raw number of donors and a significant haul from a stretch pool that, that was created it's it's exciting to be able to announce that in 36 hours we raised two million dollars like that's great but now this year after at least in terms of the total financial proceeds what might have been more of a down year maybe there's an opportunity to retool this yeah i think in all in all i think i just encourage if anybody who works in DAP or specifically in development is listening to this um, to take a little bit of the time that you take to, you know, really understand the needs of the Cupola Society and the Board of Trustees and all those big donors, gift givers, and really examine the student population and examine what is important to us. And I do think that if you take that time and that effort to, like, understand, like, what students care about, you will have a more successful case for gifts, not just in terms of the final total, because I don't think that's the only thing that matters. I agree with you. I think, like, if you were to take the time to say, like, hey, like, Mosaic covered um, student travel, scholarships, uh, specific departmental um, programs, if you were to take the time to um, identify those groups and really uplift them during Getty's Gives, I think not only would you raise more money, but you'd have such a more positive environment and a positive um, push for Getty's Gives within the student population. I think that's certainly true. All of that said, they had 3,200 donors this year, so the raw number of donors didn't seem to be a, yeah. a huge impediment. Maybe, they, maybe they've isolated it and I'm just trying. Maybe. All right, that's going to wrap up our news segment. We'll be right back with the bullet report, followed by my interview with Matt Salt, president of the Gettysburg College Democrats. And now it's time for the bullet report. 
On February the 8th, the men's track and field team finished sixth of eight at the Roanoke Invitational. The women finished seventh of seven at the same event. The men's swimming team lost to Franklin and Marshall 147 to 112 on the eighth. The women's swimming team won 166-96 the same day at the same event. The women's basketball team lost to Haverford for 54-51, while the men lost 65-63. The wrestling team lost to Wilson Town 33-9. The men's basketball team defeated McDaniel 75-73, while the women won 71-57 on February the 12th. And the men's lacrosse team defeated Messiah 60-10 on February the 15th. That's today. Lacrosse season has started. Cheering could be heard from Shirkfield at Musselman Stadium. It was at least in that direction. I assume it was from Shirkfield. But... Brighter days lie ahead for the historically successful spring sports. Gettysburg College, the men's lacrosse team went to the national championship finals. Last year, the women won it all. Thus ended. Rubble. And we'll be right back with that. pleased to be joined today by the president of the Gettysburg College Democrats, Matt Salton. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. We're here on the, uh, I was going to say the eve of, but I guess the aftermath of a primary in which they were able to count all the votes. That's true, yeah. Uh, at Iowa. Um, and and some different, uh, some different results, although off the same top two candidates. So just to recap quickly. Uh, we have Bernie Sanders, who finished in first, and then about a percent and a half to two percent behind was Pete Buttigieg, the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana. And then in a surprising third, right around the 20 percent mark, was Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota. And then perhaps most surprisingly, finishing with under 10 percent each were Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden. Uh, Biden didn't even stay in New Hampshire through the day, no. uh, headed down to South Carolina, where he has pretty much been staking his candidacy the entire time. So I guess maybe just to start, kind of what are your, some of your top level takeaways? And then we can drill into some of these candidates a little bit more. Well, I think one of the takeaways we can take is that uh, Bernie Sanders' support is there. It's very strong, and it seems to be getting just stronger as uh, the contests go on. Okay. He has this base level of support that isn't going anywhere, whereas uh Joe Biden's, let's say, seems to be a lot more fluid. They're going to Amy Klobuchar, but, and they're also going to Pete Buttigieg. Uh, he seems to be out doing the polls, Pete Buttigieg, uh, and he seems to be doing better when it comes to actual contests, whereas Bernie Sanders is doing at or about, and Warren is doing very poorly in relation to how she's polling. What do you think explains the uh, maybe the fall of Warren? I mean, in the fall, she was... A- arguably the front runner in some of these polls she was polling very well and in these first two contests she seems really to have struggled i hate to say it but i think it almost marks a uh, a tragic tale for the democratic party because she is uh, what i would call a unity candidate because she is very very progressive but she is not antagonizing the democratic party as an institution mm-hmm. uh, the way that bernie does on the stump uh 
So it's almost as though with her candidacy falling, so does Democratic unity because she had a bunch of uh, supporters who supported Hillary Clinton last time, but she also had a bunch of people who maybe supported Bernie last time because of her very progressive stances on issues. So she doesn't fit into a category too well. She's basically as uh, liberal as Bernie Sanders, but without that visceral uh, anti-establishment flair that I think a lot of his supporters like. Right. And, you know, she is her, her campaign seems maybe to have pivoted a little bit from its its what was once its core message about kind of corruption and, and, and the establishment's uh, need for reform. And, and now it seems maybe that she's getting into some less maybe clear messaging. Yeah. The message doesn't seem to be as, as compact as it once was. I mean, she can read the writing on the wall. No one's going to crack Bernie Sanders' support amongst his own ranks. You can't say anything about Bernie that's going to make his supporters fall back. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you can reveal about him that's going to make people uh, turn away. So your only hope is going outside of Bernie's support, and that seems to be anywhere to his right, whether that's in regard to policy or even if it's in regards to just helping the democratic orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that, that one candidate who has outperformed the polls has been Pete Buttigieg. Right. Um, you know, this is a, a former Indiana mayor who a year ago, no one had really heard of. I guess maybe he had run for the DNC chair position. Uh, and Maybe that got him a little bit of time in the national limelight. But what do you kind of make of his early support? And also is... Um, you know, maybe path forward. We, we talk about these supposed lanes that exist right. in the nomination, and I don't know, you know, there there's some polling to suggest that many people for whom Joe Biden is their first choice, Bernie Sanders is their second choice, but right. they seem to cast doubt on this notion of, you know, a moderate lane and a, and a progressive lane. But what do you kind of make of Buttigieg, someone who at times seems to have tried to straddle both? Yeah, um, I really like Buttigieg, uh, and one of the things about him is that if you look at the polling, I think from New Hampshire, he was the second choice amongst moderates. The first was Amy Klobuchar by a small margin, but he was the very liberal's third choice, which I think is pretty remarkable because he is fairly liberal. He supports the public option, which going back, you know, four, eight years what had been considered a rather liberal position. Today, it's considered a moderate one. He supports a number of sort of -of out-of-the-box, unorthodox policies, such as expanding the court, uh, getting rid of the electoral college that have gained popularity and traction within the modern Democratic Party. But I think think it's a testament to his brand as a politician, the story he has to tell. He's very eloquent. He is a good retail politician, as he's proven to be. He has very uh, professional and well-run campaign. He has Liz Smith, who is a veteran uh, communications savant. <laughs> right, yeah. She, uh, especially in my, uh, New York and other very high-intensity, hard uh, places to win in. And I think it's people are attracted to the fact that he's young. He's very intelligent. And he has a different story to tell. Uh, You know, it's oftentimes we hear people who rail against Washington coming from either a governor's mansion or outside politics completely. But we have sort of this unique uh, opportunity here from someone who is a municipal leader, a mayor, 
uh, of sort of a um, town that was thought to be on the decline, and he uh, helped it sort of rebound. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of criticism from uh, a lot of the things he's done in South Bend, but I think overall he's had a rather successful record as mayor. Yeah, two two points there you mentioned I want to follow up on. The first is um, this idea that some of his positions, say support for a public option, are now kind of considered centrist positions, right. whereas four, eight years ago, they would have been pretty liberal positions. But <coughs> the opposition, when the Affordable Care Act was being negotiated to these positions, was from the centrists. Yeah. Um, do you think that that's a testament to maybe some of what Bernie Sanders has done in kind of moving the con moving the Overton window, so to say, such that what was reasonable once was, you know, no public option or public option, but now public option has kind of moved to be the conservative position within the liberal, you know, half of the wing, and now Medicare for all is the liberal option? Absolutely. I mean, you know, back uh, when they were having the healthcare debates in 2009, 2010, Anthony Weiner, who despite all of his scandals. Ah, was, good old Anthony. Right. It was thought to be this, you know, uber liberal New Yorker. And uh, what was he fighting for? He was fighting for a public option. Mm -hmm. But now as we see, uh, you're right, it has become the moderate or the conservative position. Uh, we see in races uh, from the 2018 cycle from people who were running in Republican uh, st uh, districts that were leaning Republican that they eventually took over and became slightly democratic. They didn't run on just Obamacare. They, a lot of them ran on a public option. That was thought to be the compromise, whether you don't like Medicare for all because you think it's too costly, whether you think it overthrows the system too quickly and healthcare providers can't catch up, or whether you just politically don't want to put yourself in the camp with Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren on this option. A public option has become that uh, middle ground. And I think it's a terribly good thing because now we can have really great health care from more people supporting it who previously would have only supported the Affordable Care Act or nothing at all. Right. And the other point that you raised a minute ago about Buttigieg is kind of his outsider's critique of Washington in the last debate. Uh, Amy Klobuchar made a pretty deep, uh, made a pretty heartfelt case, you might say, for the virtue of experience, including experience in Washington. It was a pretty clear, implicit critique of Buttigieg. Um, what did you make of, of kind of this message that, and, and, and the punchline to her critique was, we have a first-time president or, you know, a newcomer in the White House now, and look how that's working for us. What do you kind of make of that critique? Does that strike you as disingenuous? Uh, or is there something to this idea that maybe Democrats do want someone with some Washington experience? Yeah, I mean, obviously, she has a lot of experience in Washington, so that's going to be her attack line. But, you know, it's a fair point that uh, we do have someone now with little, with no experience in government but to say, you know, to compare anyone to Donald Trump, frankly, it's, it's absurd because you can't compare anyone to Donald Trump. <laughs> more, more broadly, what do you make of Amy Klobuchar's strong finish? Some have compared her kind of to the, <coughs> to the John Kasich, John Huntsman bumps that happened in 2016 and 2012 on the Republican side right. where a more moderate candidate does really well in New Hampshire that doesn't really go anywhere after. Is that kind of where you see Klobuchar or do you think that she might have some legs to stand on? 
Um, for anyone who supports Klobuchar, I don't think they'd like to be compared to John Huntsman, but... Um, but John Kasich's I, okay? John Kasich's okay. But, uh, you know, I think I agree with that somewhat. Uh, you know, she was competing in these states where they didn't have more moderate voters. Also in New Hampshire, which uh, we have to point out, is an open primary. Right. So I think more voters voted than were Democrats in the state. I believe that was the uh, final outcome, which means a lot of independents, probably some Republicans, you'd have to look at the data, were actually voting. And amongst the candidates, they'd probably like Amy Klobuchar. My parents, who are Republicans, but they don't really vote too often and are fairly liberal, they like Amy Klobuchar simply because she's not. She's not Bernie Sanders. She's not Elizabeth Warren. Uh, you know, she's younger than Joe Biden. No one has as much uh, experience as him, but she has a fair bit of experience. She uh, is fairly progressive on issues, uh, and she has quite a resume uh, behind her. Uh, and I actually like her quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you've alluded a few times to this idea that there seems to be this group of Democratic voters who don't I don't even know if it's so much on policy grounds, it's just kind of this visceral, oh, Bernie Sanders is too liberal or Bernie Sanders is, is too extreme. Right. Do you think that there is something something to that um, where there might be a sufficient population of voters that you know, don't really see Bernie Sanders as electable or electability is of course a loaded yeah a loaded idea but do you think there's something to this idea that there are scratch voters who just won't vote for bernie sanders even if they agree with him on a lot of policy positions i think the uh yeah i think you're absolutely right uh because his policy uh platform has sort of become the policy platform of the democrats you see what people are running on it's very similar to what bernie's people have very similar to what bernie is saying but he does rub a lot of Democrats the wrong way simply because part of his shtick is attacking the Democrats. Uh, you saw that a lot in 2016. Uh, Hillary Clinton vastly outperformed him in terms of endorsements. So the, the politically savvy thing to do, which already feeds into his own narrative, is to say, I don't want them anyway. Right. I'd prefer not to have them. They're part of the machine. They're corrupt. I don't want them. When he was in Chicago... He said, I did not get Rahm Emanuel's endorsement. Good, you know, and that's sort of a line. Uh, but from where I come from, at least in uh, New York, where Democrats do very well, so the infrastructure is built up quite a bit. The machines built up quite a bit. People know each other. They work with each other. And for someone like Bernie Sanders saying, that machine is terrible, it's not working, and uh Basically, we have to replace it. They take uh, issue with a lot of that, which is why Elizabeth Warren sort of is taking a bit of that support. But a lot of his support comes from not even Democratic voters or people who would say they're Democrats. They might be registered Democrats, but they may say, I'm not a Democrat. I like Bernie Sanders, though. Right. Um, you think that it's an unfair critique of Bernie Sanders to say he's a you know, a revolutionary. I mean, I know he talks about wanting to start a political revolution, but I mean, his time in the Senate has been marked by some pragmatism. He's, he's, he was on board for Obamacare in 2000, right. in 2010, 2009, 2010. Um, you know, you and I are in a class where someone has made the argument that, um, 
the problem with these other candidates like Biden or Buttigieg or Klobuchar is that they're going to work within the existing system and that they're just going to reinforce what's wrong uh, and that only Bernie Sanders is going to kind of upend the Washington rules of the game. But, I mean, he's been in Washington for the last 30 years as a member of the Senate and as a member of the House. So do you really think that the the outsiders kind of shtick holds water vis-a-vis the facts or is it just kind of a campaign tool? I mean, unfortunately, I think it actually does hold water. And I think that's a criticism of uh, Bernie is that he is this outsider and he has been in Washington for 30 years because he's never really gotten uh, to do much in Washington. He was known as the Amendment King in the House uh, principally because when it comes to actually drafting legislation, he was never really a part of those uh, conversations. He caucused with the Democrats in the House. He caucuses with them in the Senate. But and he's even a member of the Senate Democratic Leadership Team, now the is, outreach yeah. chair. Yeah. Right. And I don't know. I sort of see that as a downside. I really like Bernie, and uh, I voted for him in 2016. And I would actually prefer if he did play the game a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when he was sitting in the New York Times uh, editorial board, he said, you know, I'm not going to call you on your birthday. I don't do the black slapping. If you're looking for someone, that, that, that ain't me. And, you know, that does a certain amount for his base and to the appeal. But I actually want someone who's going to go in there and do what needs to get done to actually get meaningful legislation passed. All right. There's this kind of old adage that, that Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line right. when it comes to kind of these this idea of, of West Wing politics versus Veep politics, maybe. Um, Joe Biden, what's going on there? <laughs> you know, have you ever heard the story of the uh, Zen master and the little boy? Why don't you tell it? <laughs> There's a village and a little boy for his 14th birthday, he gets a horse. Everyone says, how wonderful. Zen master says, we'll see. Boy falls off the horse and breaks his arm. Everyone says, how terrible. Zen master says, we'll see. There's a war. All the young men are have to go and fight in the war. Everyone says he's spared because he broke his arm. How wonderful. And the Zen master says, we'll see. We'll see. So as we look at Joe Biden, we'll see. We don't know. Right now, though, he's only competed in states where, according to the polls, he should have been doing uh, about what he's doing because a lot of his support sort of surprisingly comes from uh, a lot of black voters, uh, a lot of uh, Latinx voters uh, within the Democratic Party. And it's sort of funny, though, because, you know, in 2008, he was chosen by Barack Obama to be his running mate because he could appeal to these white, rural, working class voters. And now his base is almost flipped on its head, at least within the Democratic primary. Well, it's been interesting that the only Democratic candidates (coughs) to date that in the polls have shown a capacity to build coalitions that include voters of color would be Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Tom Steyer, and Michael Bloomberg, four pretty old white guys. Uh, And even when they were in the race, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker struggled to get out of the single digits, even among voters of color. So I'm wondering, first of all, do you see that as a as something that could hamstring the candidacies of, say, Buttigieg, who at one point was polling at zero among black voters and I think is now up to maybe four 
or Klobuchar, who similarly has registered very low support um, among among the constituency that makes up a significant portion, I don't know whether it's a plurality, but a significant portion of the Democratic electorate. It's absolutely a very important uh, part of the Democratic electorate. Uh, a lot of our leaders in the Democratic Party are part of that coalition of uh, people of color. And it's extremely important to the Democratic Party. And what you see with Buttigieg and you see with Klobuchar is they do have this disconnect. And I don't know how much that's because they're unknown. Uh, I don't know how much of it is actually based upon policy and how much of it is based on background. But Bernie Sanders, if you remember, did very poorly at the beginning with uh, black and uh, Latinx voters. At the beginning of 2016. Right. Um, sorry, my voice a little bit. But um, as, you know, Bernie Sanders has gone up in the numbers and things like that, they find that black uh, voters in the Democratic Party tend to be more pragmatic than white voters. White uh, liberal voters tend to be more so inclined to the radical uh, politics of Bernie Sanders, the radical change of Bernie Sanders, that sort of thing. They're more attracted to yeah, one of the big, just to jump in quickly, one of the big misconceptions about the Democratic electorate seems to be that black voters in particular are more liberal when, in fact, in South Carolina in particular, um, you know, and in, I think in much of the South, they tend to be older voters who maybe are affiliated with, uh, who are more churchgoing than the rest right. of the Democratic electorate and who do lean towards these more moderate candidates like Joe Biden, who, you know, a, a new poll in South Carolina came out today that showed that he is still in the lead, albeit a smaller one than he was. But it seems that that's uh, a bit of a, a misconception that some people have, um, which would also suggest that it could be concerning for someone like Pete Buttigieg if he hasn't yet been able to make inroads uh, in those communities. Have you ever heard about the uh, baby mosquito who just got its wings? Oh, I think you need to tell this uh, adage, too. Baby mosquito uh, first wings emerge and it goes off to fly. Its dad is very worried for it. He comes back. He goes out and flies for the first time. He comes back. He says, how was it, son? He said, it was great. Everyone was clapping for me. Yeah. It's not always the case that people who seem to be on your side are actually on your side. And vice versa is true. You know, the media likes to portray Buttigieg as this person who is completely... Uh, incapable of reaching black voters, and that's what wants to be the narrative. Right. But, you know, in, I mean, he's a mayor from a middle-sized town, middle town in Indiana, and he doesn't really have a lot of political backing from previous cycles of running national races and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's not doing great in many demographics, but he does have a particular problem with black voters. And that's something that he can only work on. Same thing with Amy Klobuchar. But to counter it, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and Tom Steyer and Mike Bloomberg, they have to prove themselves. They have to prove themselves that they actually do have the best interests in mind for black and brown voters in the Democratic Party. Well, right. And Bloomberg in particular, uh, the opposition research files seem to be dumping on Bloomberg with some pretty... uh, Remarkable comments he made about redlining and, and yeah, uh, and you know his record on stop and frisk continues to be uh, under scrutiny. The only he is the last candidate I wanted to ask about just briefly. We're closing in on the end of primaries happening one state at a time. 
Nevada and um, South Carolina are the last two, and they both finish up in February. And then we're approaching Super Tuesday when there are, you know, I think a dozen states and some territories that all vote on the same day, which means that you can't do the kind of retail politics that you can do in Iowa and New Hampshire. And that's kind of where Michael Bloomberg has staked his candidacy is flooding the TV airwaves there. I'm wondering kind of what effect you think he might have on this race, um, whether it's problematic that he hasn't kind of been through the ringer in the way these other candidates have in the debates and in with kind of interviews and being on the campaign trail all the time. It's just kind of how you assess his candidacy at this point. Yeah, I mean, to paraphrase Al Franken talking about Ted Cruz, I like Mike Bloomberg than most people, but I hate Mike Bloomberg. Uh, you know, I mean, Bernie Sanders gets a lot of uh, flack, let's say, mm-hmm. for not being an actual Democrat. He is not a registered Democrat. Mike Bloomberg goes a step further. He was a Republican mayor. Right. He was an independent mayor of New York. <coughs> and you're right, he has not been through the ringer. Uh the same as the other candidates. Essentially, what Mike Bloomberg is doing is he is saying, I don't need a campaign that aggressively. I have all this money. I'm just going to plaster my face on TV and see if I stick. Right. I'm not going to be in the debates. People don't really need to know about my plans. I mean, when you look at his commercials, they don't run like primary ads. They run like general election ads. They're he all said, about Trump. They're about Trump. He said he's going to protect a woman's right to choose. What Democrats running that's not? He said he's going to help with build upon the Affordable Care Act. For the Democratic primary, that is the absolute skim milk of it. That is the bare minimum of health care. When it comes to gun control, he says he wants universal background checks. I mean, these are all the... I don't want to say lamest, but they are the least. They're pretty vanilla as far as they democratic are the least policies. Bold yeah. democratic policies you can possibly think of. They are perfectly positioned for someone like Bloomberg to be running in a general election. He spoke at the DNC in 2016. He said, "I'm not a Democrat. I'm an independent. I don't agree with the Democratic Party on certain issues. I'm simply here because Hillary Clinton is better than Donald Trump." Right. Frankly, I think we need a Democrat representing the Democratic Party. Bernie Sanders may not be a registered Democrat, but he is a Democrat in terms of his values, in terms of his policy, in terms of his rhetoric, in terms of his alliances. Mm-hmm. Right. And so as we we move forward here, uh, you, uh, in the fall, in the Get His Virgins magazine, we ran a little bit where several members of College Democrats, I think they were all members of College Democrats, wrote little vignettes about right. which candidate that, at that point they were leaning towards supporting, and you wrote a bit about Buttigieg. Is that still the case, or, or kind of how have your own views evolved as to a favorite candidate, as, as I think often happens in a primary process? Right. And you know... Um, about that, I really like Pete Buttigieg. I really do. Mm-hmm. But I also really like Elizabeth Warren. And I also really like Bernie Sanders. Uh, and then to a lesser degree, I like Joe Biden. I like Amy Klobuchar. I don't like Tom Steyer. But, you know, for the top uh, polling candidates, I really like them. And I think that's part of our problem, actually, right now, is that people are saying there are no good candidates I hear sometimes. I think that's just the problem, though. We have too many good candidates. I thought Cory Booker was an excellent candidate. Kamala Harris. No one's just broken through yet. Right. And that's sort of the bed of nails. If no one breaks through, then they all feel the same. But I really like Pete Buttigieg. I think his character is very much strong. 
he represents this sort of new generation, even if not in policy. And I think a lot of the youth animus toward Pete Buttigieg comes from the fact that he doesn't represent that Bernie Sanders wing of the party that a lot of the youth line itself with. But I think he's a tactful politician. I'm excited to see where he goes. And I agree with him on a lot of policy. I wrote that in the Gettysburgian because we needed another person to write Mm -hmm. uh, in support. And I do support him. He's just not the only one I support. April 28th, Pennsylvania primary. I'll be voting in the New York primary the same day. But listen, we have a real opportunity here to make our voice heard as college students in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders won Adams County where Gettysburg is in 2016. In the Democratic primary. In the Democratic primary by 220 votes. That's it. We have more registered voters on campus than voted for him in that uh, plurality than Hillary Clinton. This time around, we have significantly more candidates, which means your vote is much more powerful. Mm-hmm. The, he may have only won by 220 votes, but with this many candidates, your candidate could win with 100 votes. He could win by 50 votes. She could win by 40 votes. So, you know, we really want people to get registered and we're going to be doing much more registration drives. Right. We're going to be going to the library doing them. We're going to be at cup tables doing them. We're going to be all over doing them. Because if you want to influence the Pennsylvania primary, which I don't know, Who's going to win? I don't think you could tell me that. I don't know. Joe Biden looked like for a while was going to win. Pete Buttigieg seems like he's going to win. Bernie Sanders could win. Amy Klobuchar could come up. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren could get her coalition back together and win. Michael Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg could win if he bothers coming. So I really don't know. Mm-hmm. But I do know that people here can really make an impact. College Democrats, it's Wednesdays, GLAT 101 at 8 p.m., talk about politics, we talk about issues, and we help you get organized with your candidates. We have a caucus for Bernie Sanders, we have a caucus for Pete Buttigieg, we have a caucus for Elizabeth Warren, and then we have uh, miscellaneous. <laughs> so please come, talk to us, I'd love to hear from you. Last uh, question, just put on your prognosticator hat. By the time April 28th rolls around, how many candidates do you think will still be in the field? That's a good question. And, you know, I, I don't know. I tell you the one about the Zen master and little boy, but I already said it. And, you know, I think uh, it could be, uh, could be five or six. Let me add something. I was really disappointed that Andrew Yang dropped out, actually. I wasn't going to vote for him, but I liked him a lot. I thought he brought up really important issues. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he's terribly principled. And I think he's a politician that we will seldom forget. Yeah, I doubt we've seen the last... <laughs> Andrew Yang, and frankly, I doubt we've heard the last from Matt Salton here on Target. Uh, So thanks so much for joining us, and I'm sure as the primary continues, we'll have you back. Thanks, Ben. Keep going my best. That's on Target for this week. We'd like to thank Matt Salton for being our featured guest we would also like to thank the executive board of WZBT and the staff of the Gettysburg for their ongoing support in this project. Please be sure to subscribe to On Target on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. On Target is a production of the Gettysburg and WZBT. Our theme music was composed by Diego Rocha, a 2019 graduate of the Sunderman Conservatory. Join us next week. We'll have Darian Davenport for real this time. 
had a little bit of a scheduling issue last time, <laughs> but we swear he's going to come on this time. Looking forward to that conversation. Until then. <laughs>